Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. What I love about Shopify is basically how no matter how big you want to grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. I know we use Shopify here at Betches. And honestly, anyone with any kind of business could really benefit from Shopify. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere from their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, 15% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. And sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. And Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklyn, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Plus, Shopify's award-winning 24-7 help is there to support your success every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash betches, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash betches now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash betches. Betches Media presents Diet Starts Tomorrow with hosts Sammy Sage I'm having a relationship with my pizza and Aileen Drexler. I'm going to make you girls a hump day treat. In a world where wellness looks perfect on Instagram. Just doing my workout. Tuesday's arms and back. But feels anything but in real life. Is butter a carb? Yes. This is the podcast exploring the emotional side of well-being. I would be proud to partake of your pecan pie. From people who understand the struggle. I am on the third day of my cleanse diet. Hello and welcome back to Diet Starts Tomorrow. I'm Sammy. And I'm Aileen. And today we are back with someone who is really like foundational in the intuitive eating space and I'm feeling so lucky to have her. She's the right intuitive eating coach, registered anti-diet dietitian and author of the book Anti-Diet, Reclaim Your Time, Money, Well-Being and Happiness Through Intuitive Eating. This is Christy Harrison, who you may know from her podcast Food Psych. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for being here. I feel like you were one of the first podcasts I listened to when I first like started exploring intuitive eating, even like knowing what it being aware of what it was like over two years ago. So yeah, we are very grateful to have you and to be talking to you about this. Well, thank you. I'm so glad my work's been helpful. So I guess where we want to start is just how did you become the anti-diet dietitian? (laughs) Um, How did did that start for you? Were you in a place where you needed to recover to to discover intuitive eating? Yeah, definitely. I mean, it it was a winding path for me, actually, because I was an intuitive eater for the first 20 years of my life, which is like such a you know, a blessing and sort of a privilege to have in this culture because a lot of people have someone interfering in their relationship with food much earlier than that and taking them away from those intuitive eating skills we're all born with. But I managed, you know, I think through thin privilege, being thin enough that nobody ever told me I needed to lose weight and also economic privilege of just having, you know, food security and never having, uh, you know, always having enough to eat. I was able to kind of get by with my intuitive eating skills intact and it wasn't until my junior year of college when I went and studied abroad, gained a little bit of weight, 
kind of all the stuff that I had been, you know, taught and inculcated into and diet culture came rushing to the fore. And I went on my first diet and tumbled pretty quickly into very disordered eating. And, you know, then graduated college, was starting my career as a journalist in the midst of having what was, I now know, you know, at the time was a clinically diagnosable eating disorder, although it wasn't diagnosed at the time. But, um, you know, it was really, really disordered with food, really struggling, restricting, binging, you know, compensating, doing all these very disordered things in my relationship with food. And so that was sort of the beginning of my career as a journalist. And it really attracted me to reporting on food, nutrition, and health because I was just obsessed with figuring those things out. And, you know, like many people, when they have severely disordered eating, I had a lot of health problems that I was trying to figure out the answers to. And unfortunately, doctors couldn't really give me an answer. And I kept kind of going from doctor to doctor and was feeling really unsatisfied with the, you know, quote unquote, Western medicine um, complex and the Western medicine answers. And so I kind of got further and further into alternative medicine and, you know, food related cures or quote unquote cures. And so that was the beginning of my journalism career. And uh, you know, it sort of attracted me into nutrition reporting specifically, and I ended up going back to school to become a dietitian after like six or seven years of working full time as an editor. And, you know, when I went back to school, it was, I mean, all through that time, I should say, of being a journalist and then going back to school to become a, become a dietitian, I was like incrementally recovering. You know, I didn't have kind of a moment where I went to treatment and like really had to confront everything all at once. It was more of a slow um, you know, steps, slow steps out of the most disordered place. I think the first step being that I started dating a food writer who was really excited about food, took me on lots of food adventures, and I had to like eat adventurously around him. So when we were together and then increasingly that was more and more of our time, I had to like act like I was cool with food, you know, and I sort of secretly did other compensatory stuff and restricted when he wasn't around. But when he was, I really like threw down, you know, I was I was there. I was in it. I was present with the food. And I think that really helped pull me out of the most destructive parts of my eating disorder. Um, but then, you know, slowly over the years, there were just a number of different things, including weekly psychotherapy, which is I definitely don't want to like undersell the benefits of that. I think that was probably the biggest impact on my healing my relationship with food. Um, and then I also discovered the book Intuitive Eating when I was in grad school. And so that was, I think, a huge turning point for me too, because I brought that book into my therapy. I started to reconnect with the intuitive eating that I had been born with. And it, you know, I think even just the title of that book sort of jogged my thinking, like, oh, right, this is I know how to do this. Like this is kind of how I used to eat. And what if I could get back there, you know? And so that was sort of the, the, the first major step out of it, I think, was discovering that book and starting to relearn intuitive eating for myself. But then I had this weird phase of like starting my career as a nutritionist. It was before I was licensed as a dietitian, but in New York, you don't have to be licensed to practice nutrition <laughs> for better or worse. Um, and so I started, you know, working in various, I worked for a city agency and um, did, was, you know, doing nutrition related work in various um, city, you know, city places and stuff. And I 
started, you know, count, I started noticing that the stuff that I was counseling my clients on or the things that I was telling people in sort of a nutrition education setting to do with food were not the things that I was doing because now I was eating more intuitively and not restricting. And I was telling these people to restrict and, you know, cut out certain types of foods or choose some foods over others. And it just started to dawn on me like, wait a minute, this is kind of weird, especially that when I then saw participants in my courses and stuff coming back, the really like star students coming back and telling me the things that they were doing. And I was like, oh, God, like that sounds a little bit like what I used to do back when I was really messed up around food. You know, I still didn't quite have the language to say like, that was disordered eating, what they're doing is disordered eating. But I knew enough at that point to know like I was messed up around food and now I'm seeing these people doing that and I don't want to replicate that in my clients. So I think that's what started me down the path of exploring what it would mean to be an intuitive eating dietitian. That's that's amazing. So just a question about your about your book. How is your book or your approach potentially like any is it any different from the original intuitive eating book? I mean, I think it's, you know, I'm trained and certified by Evelyn Triboli and Elise Rush, who wrote the original intuitive eating book. And I really value their approach. And I think that we are aligned on so many things. I think that, you know, they just came out with the fourth edition, the 25th anniversary edition of the book, which, you know, the first edition was published in 1995. So they evolved a lot since then. Their thinking, their approach to intuitive eating has become more and more firmly anti-diet since then. And in the latest uh, version of the book, I think it's the most strongly sort of this takes the strongest stance against diet culture and even talks explicitly about diet culture for the first time in that book. Um, but that came out in like the summer of 2020. My book came out in the winter of 2019. And, you know, at the time that I was pitching it and writing it, there really wasn't an intuitive eating book that was also so firmly anti-diet and specifically like, you know, a cultural history. Because what I really wanted to do was not just a how-to book, not like fully service oriented, although there is a lot of, you know, how to and service in there. My real interest, because I I double majored in rhetoric and French literature, and I'm really kind of obsessed with culture and like, you know, the construction of ideas and arguments and how, how, you know, it was just so fascinating to me, like, how did we get here? How did we get to this place where everybody's expected to shrink their body if they're a certain size or even if they're not a certain size, right? Even, you know, that everybody's expected to always be thinking about shrinking their body or at least maintaining their weight and cutting out foods and, you know, this whole new language of wellness and wellness culture and like alternative medicine being so fixated on food. I was just like, how did we get here? You know, I wanted to trace that lineage. I wanted to understand that because I feel like that you know, to me, that was really the key, like learning some of that stuff, learning some about the history of diet culture and media literacy and learning how, you know, images are manipulated and things like that. I think that was really helpful to me in my own recovery because I could start to see, you know, this isn't how it always has to be. Like maybe this is how it has been for the last 150 years or so, but that doesn't mean there's not another way to approach this stuff. And, you know, in the grand scheme of history, that's a relatively short period of time. And there's some really interesting kind of uh, milestones along that way that sort of got us to where we are now from 150, 200 years ago. And so that was sort of my um, 
approach to the book was, you know, to trace this cultural history, to help people really understand what diet culture is, and basically to put into practice that first principle of intuitive eating, reject the diet mentality. Because I think that's the principle that people struggle with the most. I think that's the principle that, you know, living in this culture, you can so easily sort of lose sight of or tumble away from because diet culture is everywhere. And so what even is the diet mentality? Like recognizing it and learning to reject it is a super complicated proposition when you're in a culture that is so wedded to the diet mentality, where the diet mentality is embedded at every turn. Right. I mean, from our perspective, we've been on diets <laughs> since we were children. So, and that's why we've like kind of explored intuitive eating. I, I personally worked with um, Elise Rush too. So it's been definitely a journey. It feels like cat food has been the same forever. Smelly, boring, made of mystery ingredients. That's why you've got to try Smalls. Small's cat food is protein-packed recipes made with preservative-free ingredients you'd find in your own fridge. And it's delivered right to your door. Make the switch from kibble and give your cat a meal they'll love. We actually sent some Small's to my friend in Brooklyn who is fostering kittens, and they took to it right away. It is delicious. It is nutritious. It is easy to serve. Yum, yum, yum. Eat it up. Your cute kitty is descended from ferocious desert cats who hunted live prey. Even if your cat prefers to nap all day, they still need fresh, protein-packed meals for a balanced and healthy diet. Other brands fill their food with mysterious meat byproducts, artificial flavoring, and preservatives with names I don't even want to try to pronounce. After switching it up to Smalls, 90% of cat owners reported overall health improvements. That's major. The team at Smalls is so confident your cat will love their product that you can try it risk-free. That means they'll completely refund you if your picky cat won't eat their food. Now is the time to make the switch to Smalls. Head to smalls.com DST and use promo code DST at checkout for 50% off your first order, plus free shipping. That's the best offer you'll find. But you have to use my code DST for 50% off your first order. One last time, that's promo code DST for 50% off your first order, plus free shipping. You talk about culture. Do you think the culture is like significantly shifting now in terms of like intuitive eating becoming more mainstream? I do. I think it is. And I think that's a double-edged sword actually, right? Because I think it's great that more people are being exposed to that. I think it's it's awesome that intuitive eating has become sort of the law of the land in certain places, right? And in eating disorder circles, I think it's become a pretty – um, dominant force, you know, and certainly there are, um, you know, and health at every size, I should say, which, you know, if you think about the lineage of those things, it's sort of complicated. But I think now as they stand, health at every size is sort of the umbrella under which intuitive eating falls as like an approach to food and movement. And then there's other aspects of health at every size too that sort of don't involve food and movement. Um, but, you know, so those those two things, I think health at every size and intuitive eating, I think are more in the public eye are more sort of um, becoming embraced by different corners of the health and wellness field, which is awesome. And I see a lot more people trying to co-opt intuitive eating and to a lesser extent maybe co-opt health at every size. I mean, that has a registered trademark, so I think it's a little harder to co-opt that. Um, but the term intuitive eating, you know, people are co-opting that and, and like, you know, if, I don't know if you saw recently, a few months ago, there was like intuitive fasting, yeah. right? This Gwyneth Paltrow, <laughs> 
you know, your favorite doctor of the moment or naturopath or whatever is like promoting this supposed intuitive fasting, which is just complete nonsense, right? Like that is antithetical to the very first principle of intuitive eating, which is reject the diet mentality. And I think a lot of these, you know, people and companies that are trying to co-opt intuitive eating, Noom is another one, right? Noom is sort of positioning itself as the anti-diet. Like if you Google anti-diet, they've like bought an ad at the top of the page, you know? Yeah. Um, Marketing. Yeah. And they say that they teach people intuitive eating, but really it's just a diet. You know, it's, it's teaching people how to eat less, how to eat different, you know, eschew certain kinds of foods and eat more of others. All of that is just diet culture. So I think you have to be really careful in this day and age, sort of where you're getting your intuitive eating uh, information from and recognize that there is a lot of co-optation and sort of twisting of intuitive eating in the service of diet culture. And that's not really what intuitive eating is at its fundamental level. I, f- I feel like it's not there, there's co-opting and then there's just misinterpreting. Um, right. A lot of people just think it just means you eat whatever you want. Like you just mm-hmm. sort of that's that's all there is <laughs> as part of it. And it's hard to we what we try to do here is like just remind people to, it's like a a way to recover from a a life <laughs> or however long um of disordered eating or eating disorders mm-hmm. um but in terms of like what those misinterpretations are like what are some other common misconceptions that you see um practicing intuitive eating across the board or where you see on social mm-hmm. media or even in our own diet stars from our group, people are saying like, I don't think it's for me. I can't just eat everything, you know? Yeah, no, totally. I think the eat everything um, approach is one misinterpretation of intuitive eating because that is a, an aspect of it, right? Is learning to make peace with food, but it doesn't necessarily mean just diving in head first and like, and not, you know, sort of approaching it in a systematic way. When I teach intuitive eating, certainly there are some people who are ready to just like shake off the chains and just dive right in, you know, and embrace all the foods that they had um, once forbidden themselves or the diets had forbidden them to eat. But I think for a lot of people, it's scary and it takes time and it takes sort of a stepwise approach of reintroducing foods that you have lots of feelings about, and lots of anxiety about and, you know, getting comfortable with sort of maybe the easier foods and then kind of going up the chain to the the ones that are more challenging. But also like you have to have the base there of unconditional permission to eat, of you know, not being afraid or sort of at least pushing back against the fear of what's going to happen to your weight, right? Because I think when you dive right into eating all foods and being like, yes, all foods are allowed. I can eat whatever I want every, anytime, anywhere, you know, no constraints. A, I think it's unrealistic for a lot of people because, you know, most, a lot, a lot of people's schedules don't allow and budgets don't allow them to eat exactly what they want, exactly when they want it, you know? And I think that's one version of turning intuitive eating into a diet is like, I must eat the exact thing I'm craving at the exact moment I'm craving it, you know, like mealtimes be damned, right? I'm going to eat my lunch at 10 a.m. because I'm craving, you know, this exact thing right now. And it's like, okay, that is, you could do that if you want to. You fully have unconditional permission to do that. 
And you don't have to do that. That doesn't, that's not like what intuitive eating is, right? You could also say, I'm hungry right now. It's 1030. I'm going to have a snack. I'm going to have a morning snack. And then I'm going to wait for lunch because I'm, I have a lunch scheduled with my friend and I really want to go try this new restaurant we're planning to try. Whatever, you know, like you, you have that sort of flexibility with intuitive eating. So it's not just all about like eating exactly what you want the moment you're craving it. Or, you know, the flip side of that that I see with people is like, well, I don't have a particular craving, so I guess I'm just not going to eat, right? And it's like, well, sometimes you're hungry and you don't know exactly what you're hungry for, and that's okay. You can kind of zero in on something, you know, is it, do you want something hot or something cold? Do you want something crunchy or something smooth? You can kind of get in the ballpark even if you don't have a specific craving. Another thing I see is, you know, this is a classic, and my colleague Isabel Fox and Duke coined this term, the hunger and fullness diet, right, which is turning intuitive eating into a diet whose rules are you can only eat when you're hungry, and it has to be like a certain level of hunger. It has to be, you know, whatever number on the hunger scale, and you must stop the moment you're full. You can't eat, you know, a hair past fullness, or that's, you know, supposedly bad, right? And that's just turning intuitive eating into a diet whose rules are you know, happen to be based around hunger and fullness, but they might as well be based around anything, the clock or calories or whatever. You know, it's it's still it's still these arbitrary rules. And intuitive eating, yes, like two of the 10 principles are, uh, you know, honor your hunger and feel your fullness. But there are also eight other principles that in many cases are more important than, you know, hunger and fullness and, and sort of following those exactly. Right? So honoring your hunger means eating when hunger is present and eating enough to satisfy hunger. But it can also mean preemptively eating so that you're not hungry when you're in a long meeting. You know, I had a snack before we got on the on the call today because, you know, we're probably going to be talking through my lunchtime. So I had like, you know, wanted to preemptively eat so that I wouldn't get ravenous in the middle of the call and lose my train of thought, you know, and that I wasn't really hungry, but I still ate, right? So that's very much intuitive eating too, is, you know, planning and thinking through what your day looks like and taking care of yourself through food, taking care of yourself through having enough food and, you know, getting your food needs met, however that may, might look. And of course, if you're someone with food insecurity, that's going to look different than if you're someone who is food secure, right? So with food insecurity, honoring your hunger might not be possible every single time, but how can you work towards being able to honor it more often and getting the resources you need and the help that you need to make that happen? That's so interesting about what you're saying about how like it's not just about the hunger and fullness because I feel like that is a massive misconception and honestly, right now, I'm wishing that I had done what you did and eaten before the call so that I wouldn't be hungry like I am now. Warmer weather is finally back. After so many cold months, it's nice to get outside and soak up the sun. But the springtime always brings those unwanted guests, pollen and seasonal allergies. April showers bring spring flowers and sniffly noses and stuffed up sinuses. Luckily for those of us who live with the symptoms of allergies, we can live Claritin clear with Claritin D. Shout out to Claritin for supporting this episode and providing us with samples. I suffer from seasonal allergies. I just had them hit the other day. I couldn't breathe through my nose at all. And I popped a Claritin and it was like night and day. I'm a huge fan of Claritin. I use it on the 
regular. And it always helps when we're making that transition from winter to spring, which is when my allergies flare up. Mainly, it's my sinuses that get so clogged and the Claritin just clears it right up. Designed for serious allergy sufferers, Claritin D has two powerful ingredients in just one pill that relieve your allergy symptoms and decongest your nose so you can breathe better. This double action combination of prescription strength allergy medicine and the best decongestant available relieves sneezing, a runny nose, itchy and watery eyes, an itchy throat and nose, and sinus congestion and pressure with ease. Ready to live your life as if you don't have allergies? It's time to live Claritin clear. Fast and powerful relief is just a quick trip away. Find Claritin D at the pharmacy counter. Ask for Claritin D at your local pharmacy counter. You don't even need a prescription. Go to Claritin.com right now for a discount so you can live Claritin clear. Use as directed. This episode is brought to you by Newly. Have you ever felt that fast fashion ick but can't always find the super high-end stuff? I have a solution for you, Newly. Newly has everything you need to bring your closet up to speed for this season without breaking the bank. Free your closet of impulse purchases and skip the buyer's remorse by renting instead. Newly is a subscription clothing rental service. For just $98 a month, you get your choice of any six styles each month. Access to thousands of styles from more than 400 brands. There are no fees, late fees, damage fees, or fees to pause or cancel. They also have inclusive sizing up to 5X as well as petite and maternity. And you always have the option to buy what you love. I love Newly. I've rented so many cute things from there, and I've even made a few purchases from there. And They're always spot on. They have so many brands that I honestly could never afford in real life, so it's great to be able to rent them. Newly is a great value at $98 a month for any six styles, but right now you can get $20 off your first month of Newly when you sign up with the code DST20. Just go to Newly, that's N-U-U-L-Y.com, and enter the code DST20 and sign up to get $20 off your first month. That's N-U-U-L-Y dot com, newly with two U's, with code DST20. Newly subscription clothing rental. Change your clothes. You also mentioned weight gain and fear of body changes that people have. This is definitely a huge, I think, topic for our audience, many of whom have tried intuitive eating. This is a topic for myself, um, who has been trying intuitive eating, but based on some of the things you said, maybe I'm not, you know, necessarily like viewing it 100% correctly. Um, So can you talk a little bit about um, like how people can sort of grapple with that reality? You you also mentioned earlier about like misconceptions about haze Mm -hmm. and I guess like how that plays into that. Yeah, that's such a good question. I mean, I think first of all, I'll say like it's completely understandable, I think, to struggle with weight gain or with with fears of weight gain in this culture, right? Because this culture has made us from day one. And, you know, you you both shared that you'd been on diet since you were children. So there's like this massive indoctrination into diet culture and the sort of habituation of restricting yourself and depriving yourself of certain foods and the idea that that's going to have an impact on your weight and and what that, you know, what our culture says about that, right? Because this culture, diet culture has made us fear weight gain because, you know, really what I define diet culture as is a system of beliefs that worships thinness and equates it to health and moral virtue, promotes weight loss as a means of attaining higher status, whether moral status, health status, social status, or all of the above, um, 
demonizes some foods while elevating others and oppresses people who don't match its supposed picture of health and well-being. And so, you know, when you think about those kind of four tenets of diet culture, you can start to see them everywhere in so much of our media and our just the way that we talk about food and bodies, the way that parents and teachers talk about food and bodies and doctors and other healthcare professionals. And, you know, so it's really understandable that you would have this belief that weight gain is bad and that, you know, losing weight is going to equate to higher standing and that the gaining weight is going to do the opposite. It's going to take you away from, you know, the acceptance and the love and the success that you crave and deserve that we all deserve, you know. And so I think just honoring that and sort of having compassion for that is really what I would say the first step is. And actually, when I teach intuitive eating in my online course, I have like it's a 13 module course, even though there are only 10 principles of intuitive eating, because there's additional modules that I think are really important for the implementation of intuitive eating. And the first one is self-compassion, because I think it's just so important to to start to speak to yourself with compassion and to understand like how common, how understandable it really is to have these struggles and have these fears and to not try to push those away, but like let them be there and give yourself compassion for them, not let them take over either, right? So not let the fear of weight gain dictate what you do. But if if you do happen to fall into that, of noticing, oh, you know, I did that. I served myself less there because I was afraid of weight gain or I you know, I've been cutting out this particular food, telling myself it's because it makes me feel better. But actually, I'm realizing now that there's this unconscious or semi-conscious fear that that food is going to make me gain weight or that it has already made me gain weight, you know. And so just having compassion for yourself for all those little ways that diet culture shows up in your relationship with food. It's a long process. And, you know, it took me years to relearn intuitive eating. And I'm, again, someone who's privileged to have had, you know, have to have grown up with intuitive eating, to have become an adult um, with intuitive eating, which I think made it somewhat easier to get back to it. And it still took me like 10 years to relearn it, you know? So I think knowing and recognizing like the people that I work with who have been on diets since they were kids, especially if they're in their, you know, 30s, 40s, 50s, or 60s, right? Some people in their 70s or 80s are relearning intuitive eating, you know? Like think about all the decades of conditioning that you have, that you, you've absorbed, that you have to unlearn in order to get back to intuitive eating. It, it can be a really long process and it can be kind of a tall order. And sometimes that feels daunting and scary, but I think sometimes you can just sort of recognize like, okay, I really want to do this. I really want to break free from diet culture and disordered eating. And it's going to be difficult and it's going to, you know, be, there's going to be ups and downs along the way and that's okay. And that's kind of why I wrote the book because I wanted to really give people the tools and the ammunition to understand what diet culture is, how to recognize it, how it shows up in our lives and, you know, help people get angry really so they can fight back so that they can um, reject diet culture in a way that is grounded in, you know, reality that has a lot of scientific and sort of lived experience um, facts behind it. And, you know, I think that anger, when we can start to direct that anger outward at diet culture instead of inward at ourselves for, quote unquote, failing our diets, um, that anger can be harnessed and can be really useful in our in, you know, propelling us forward in this path. So, you know, to your question about health at every size and sort of misconceptions around that, I think the the biggest misconception I see around health at every size is people saying everybody's automatically healthy at every size or at any size they're at. 
And of course, that's just not true, right? I'm someone with multiple chronic illnesses. You know, I'm not going to be quote unquote healthy by many standards, no matter what size I am, right? Because these chronic illnesses have nothing to do with my weight. They're just going to follow me throughout life. And that's okay. You know, I learn how to manage them and, and I can have well-being to the degree that, you know, I that I feel is important or that I want to put the, the energy into, right? Um, and also to the degree that, you know, life circumstances allow. But, you know, to be sort of, quote unquote, healthy, to be labeled healthy, I don't think is is really possible for a lot of people, you know. And I think, too, there are some people who are, you know, really re restricting themselves, really disordered with food. And those might be folks at the higher end of the weight spectrum, too. You know, there's certainly people who are um, at the very low end of the BMI spectrum who are restricting and depriving themselves. And health at every size does not mean you're healthy at that size. But also health at every size does not mean that you're healthy at whatever size you're at if you're restricting and depriving yourself, if you're dieting, if you're even, you know, doing sneaky diets that are turning intuitive eating into a diet, right? Like, whatever size you are when you're doing those things probably isn't the size that your body actually wants to be once it's not restricted. And so, you know, recognizing that, recognizing that to allow your body to get to a place that is, um, that feels safe for it and that feels comfortable for it is going to require getting over the disordered eating behaviors and, you know, healing from diet culture so that you can allow yourself to have enough, so that you can allow your weight to settle where it may. And I think another misconception that I see with intuitive eating is that, you know, if you're someone who binges or sees yourself as eating too much, right, even if you maybe don't eat enough and you're creating the binges or creating the out-of-control feelings with food from restriction, but you don't see that, you just see yourself as like, oh, God, I eat too much, and that's why I've gained weight or that's why I am this weight – um, you know, when I think when you think of yourself like that, it's sort of easy to think, well, with intuitive eating, the weight will just melt off. It'll just come off naturally, right? And I see, you know, again, that there's the co-opting and then there's the misinformation, right? I think the people who are just kind of misinformed are like, oh, yeah, of course, that's what's going to happen. I'll lose weight naturally through intuitive eating. And then there's the people who co-opt it and who sell it as a weight loss method to say when you're eating intuitively, you're going to just naturally lose weight. And they sort of promise that as an outcome. That is really unfortunate because I think, you know, that's not the case for most people. Yes, some people might unintentionally lose weight through intuitive eating, but a lot of people gain weight through, an intu through intuitive eating, at least at first, because they were restricted and deprived, because they were not eating enough and not allowing their bodies to have all the nourishment they needed. And that's okay. And that's a normal part of the process. And some people's weight doesn't really change that much, you know? So it's kind of like one of those three things might happen, but we can't predict What's going to happen? Are you going to lose weight, gain weight, or stay the same for any particular person? Even if they see themselves as a binger or they have a history of binge eating disorder or something, we can't say with any certainty, you know, intuitive eating is going to help you lose weight because that's just not the case for a lot of people. And, and that's okay, you know, and I know that's so hard to swallow in our culture and especially as someone with, you know, relative thin privilege. I know it's hard probably for larger bodied folks than me to hear me say that or to hear other intuitive eating professionals who are thinner say that because it's like easy for you to say you don't have to live in in my skin right and that's true i know i get it like i know this world is cruel to higher weight people and you know there are many many higher weight clinicians you know intuitive eating practitioners therapists health at every size professionals who agree and who who you know will also say yes you know 
it's it sucks to be higher weight in this culture and you can't you know you can't diet yourself thin and you can't intuitive eating yourself thin um, for any sustainable length of time without you know for very small percentage of people maybe they can do it for longer than five years right it's you know two to five percent of people or something can can be those quote-unquote success stories with dieting but those folks actually have a lot of behaviors that are that mirror behaviors in anorexia nervosa. And in some cases, those probably are folks with higher weight anorexia who've dieted their their bodies down to a place that maybe they're considered quote unquote normal weight, but actually that's really suppressed for them because they're engaging in um, really disordered behaviors. Guys, as many of you know, I've been on an alcohol-free journey. Please don't hold it against me that I just said journey, but I have. And one thing that I've really missed on this journey is beer. But now with Athletic Brewing, I'm able to get that delicious beer-like taste in my mouth without any of the alcohol. It's amazing. Just so you guys know, I used to love sours. I'm a big sour drinker and I really miss that taste. And now I don't have to miss out on it. It's amazing. Whether you're trying to cut back or you just want to explore a non-alcoholic alternative, Athletic Brewing is often a game changer. They offer a variety of different full-flavored brews with no alcohol allowing you to sip and celebrate anytime and anywhere. Do you like hazy IPAs, sweet fruity sours? Now you can enjoy this style without the hangover the next day. They offer hassle-free delivery right to your door when you order at athleticbrewing.com. Athletic brews bevs you can drink anytime, anywhere, and still go right back to whatever you were doing. It's a great fit for parenting, playing sports, watching sports, doing chores late nights and early mornings, so you can imbibe without worry. Try Athletic Brewing non-alcoholic beers for yourself. Use code DST to get 15% off your first order at athleticbrewing.com. That's code DST at checkout for 15% off your first order. Near beer, exclusions and conditions apply. Athletic Brewing Company, fit for all times. In the market for investment-worthy bags, watches, and fine jewelry, Rebag is the answer. Rebag is a luxury resale platform where each piece is carefully inspected by experts to ensure quality and authenticity. Use Rebag to buy and sell finds from the world's top brands, including Louis Vuitton, Chanel, and Cartier. Head to Rebag.com and get up to 15% off your first purchase as a member with code REBAGNEW. Shop today at Rebag.com. That's R-E-B-A-G.com. And use promo code REBAGNEW for up to 15% off your first purchase as a member. I do want to kind of go back to something that you said earlier about how it took you several years to kind of like figure out what you were like, what was really working for you in intuitive beating and how it can be kind of like a road of ups and downs. Can you describe what some of those ups and downs are so that as people are doing it and they're experiencing some of those things, like that they can recognize that that is just part of the process and not like something dysfunctional with themselves. Totally. Yeah. So I think, you know, those misconceptions or misinterpretations of intuitive eating are definitely things to look out for, right? Are you turning it into the hunger and fullness diet? Are you turning it into the, um, you know, eat intuitively to lose weight diet? Are you turning it into the, I must always eat exactly what I want, exactly when I want it diet? 
are you turning it into another Isabel Fox and Duke coinage is the don't eat emotionally diet, right? Where it's like, I can eat whatever I want, whenever I want, as long as, long as it's not emotional. And, you know, what is that really, right? We can, that's kind of maybe a whole separate discussion around what emotional eating really is and really isn't. And the research on that is pretty interesting that, you know, dieters are really the people who end up eating in ways they see as emotional. And when you're not dieting and deprived, emotional eating dissipates or disappears for most people. Um, but so those are some of the common, I think, ways that intuitive eating can be twisted. But there are other things that come up with intuitive eating too. There's one that I call the honeymoon phase, which is maybe not the most apropos language. And I'm trying to think through some other language for it. But what it really means is, um, you know, the the part where you when you're first allowing yourself to eat all the foods that you've previously forbade yourself and all you want to eat are those foods you're like can i really have brownies okay i want to have them you know every day multiple times a day as many as i can because there's a part of your brain and your body that thinks you know this is limited this is not these are going to go away right i'm not always going to have permission to eat these as much as i want whenever i want and so better get them all in now and so you're kind of like in this early stage relationship with them where it's all you want to do, you know, when you're like with a new partner that you're really excited about, right? They're the only person you want to spend time with. You might just like, you know, fall down rabbit holes of time with them and, you know, suddenly a week has gone by and you haven't left their house or whatever, right? So there's, there. well, that was before the pandemic, actually. I don't know, <laughs> I don't know what people are doing now. Um, but, you know, it's, it's sort of like that, right, with these new foods that you're finally opening up to. It's like, I, I want to make sure that I always have this. I want to, you know, this is all I want. And where have where has this food been all my life, you know? But I think um, just kind of knowing that that prob probably is coming, not that everybody has that, but there is a phase of that for many people with particular types of food, where if you can just reassure yourself, like, this food really will be available anytime I want it, whenever I want it. And the key to reassuring yourself that in a sustainable way is just allowing it again and again and again. You know, even if you feel like you've been quote unquote overeating it or you're judging yourself as bad for eating it. Sometimes, you know, folks who have binge eating disorder or are really, really anxious about this process can really benefit from some structured support, some therapy, working with a dietitian who specializes in intuitive eating and health at every size. You know, I think it's definitely there are people who have a real hard time with this. And I, I don't want to ever minimize that because I think, you know, some of us need that extra support. But I think if you can experiment with this and allow yourself, you know, whatever food that is that you're just gravitating towards because it was forbidden, it really is amazing how the habituation sets in where, you know, after a certain point in time, you, you don't, it's not that you get sick of it and never want it again, because that's dieting kind of too. That's like a diety interpretation of intuitive eating yeah. is like, oh, I'm never going to want sweets again once I you know that they're always available. I'm only going to eat whole minimally <laughs> processed foods, blah, blah, blah. You know, like that's yeah. definitely also a diet. Um, but, you know, knowing that you can always have it, I think really helps you just relate to it in a way that is much more calm and, you know, you feel more in charge. You feel more like I can take it or leave it. I can have it at this meal if I want it. But also there's these other foods that look really good and – now I trust that this food is going to be available so I don't feel like I have to like compulsively go to it again and again. And I can tell you from personal experience, like I have a whole pantry full of foods now that 
I thought that I could never have in the house because, you know, I would just eat to the bottom of the box or the bag and they'd be gone within one sitting because I was so deprived of them. And also because this is another thing, because I was so chronically energy deprived too, right? Because when you're restricting your overall energy intake, your overall calories or the amount of food you're eating, that also makes you gravitate preferentially towards foods that are high in carbohydrates, high in fat, the foods that are going to get you that energy you need quickly and restore the lost nutrients, the lost energy that you're missing. And so, you know, I think um, healing that and sort of bringing down the temperature on your relationship with particular foods requires both habituation to that particular food and the knowledge that it's always going to be there and eating enough overall. Because I think when you're not eating enough overall, there is still going to be that those biological mechanisms that drive you preferentially towards particular types of food. No, yeah, I, I totally agree also about like keeping the stuff once you have it in your house um, knowing and it's there also like helps you sort of not binge it. I've never been able to keep like a Ben and Jerry's in my house for longer than a few days or just so. And then I have some in my freezer that have gone bad, which is literally the most like unlike me thing <laughs> to, <laughs> that ever could happen. Um, I just also want to go back to something you were talking about weight gain and stuff and that fear and but also a reality of weight gain. Um, that we had some really good listener questions and one of them, you know, I also wrote this in an outline is like, is there a middle ground for intuitive eating? And I don't even know what I meant by that. But one of the listeners wrote in saying, is there room for wanting to lose weight in intuitive eating? And I know immediately like it's, I know the answer is sort of, well, you have to reject diet culture, but say you still <laughs> for your body, I don't, I, maybe it's not from a fat phobic perspective, but you just, for your body, you want to be at a smaller size. Is there any room for wanting to lose weight, but also be an intuitive eater? Such a good question. I mean, I'll say, I guess I'll take the last part of your question first around like thinking that, you know, it's not fat phobic, but you just want to be at a smaller size for your body. Yeah. I really question whether that's possible, right? Because, you know, we've been socialized in this culture that is so fat phobic that, and, you know, again, those, those tenets of diet culture, right? It's not just, you know, fear and loathing of heavier bodies, but it's also this idea that higher weight bodies are um, less you know, desirable, less less successful, um, the status, right? The sort of status that goes along with being a, at a lower weight um, and, a, and the lack of status that goes along with being at a higher weight is, is really impactful, right? On sort of how we see weight and what our bodies, quote unquote, should look like. So I think that, you know, anytime there's a desire to be smaller than you are, I think it's coming in some way, shape, or form from diet culture usually, right? And who knows? Maybe there's a scenario that I'm not thinking of that someone could, you know, write in with and it's like, oh, okay, well, there's the one there's the one time when maybe it isn't related to diet culture. But I really – I've thought about this a lot over the years and I really can't see sort of a way that someone would want to lose weight that isn't um, – inculcated by diet culture, right? Even the health stuff, even the idea that you would be healthier if you lost weight, that actually is, and I talk about this in the book, I, I sort of trace the history of, of how 
the medical industry got caught up in the idea that people need to lose weight. And it wasn't because of science telling, you know, saying that, that higher weight people were less healthy. It was actually because of pre-existing fat phobia. Like the, the fat phobia predated the health arguments by, a, you know, many years. Um, and so I think that just anytime there's sort of a desire to lose weight, I think it's worth questioning. And, you know, sometimes you might be tired, not up for it, whatever, and have compassion for yourself, but just sort of recognize like, oh, that thought's popping into my head. Okay, can I let this go? Can I put this aside? Can I put this on the shelf? And maybe you come back to it and re-examine it later. And there, you know, there's other I would say deeper psychological reasons in addition to diet culture that like for a particular person, a desire to lose weight might pop up, right? So, you know, you might have this strong desire to lose weight after seeing a picture of yourself at your sister's baby shower, let's say. But actually you think about it and it's like, oh, okay, well, all the people who were there and sort of this, the like social, you know, conditioning about having a baby and like that she's at this point in her life and that, you know, I'm not at this point in my life. And what does that say about me? And how are people, you know, how am I feeling judged or scrutinized by family members because of that? Right. So there might be something like that. I mean, that was just an example out of thin air. But, you know, I think there are re reasons, you know, psychological reason reasons sort of for each individual that have something to do with diet culture, but also maybe something to do with kind of your particular circumstances and personal life at the moment. Um, that I think are worth exploring, you know, what if your reason and I'll say this like for myself, but like I have um, I've gained a significant amount of weight from doing intuitive eating and like I normally feel just like, OK, but and even in social situations, like it's fine, but like physically standing on my feet has become more painful and like the way my body moves when I walk has become like less agile and I can like sense changes in myself that are like, I feel like I'm, I'm wearing like, like an extra layer of clothing. And yes, like I know that there's definitely fat phobic beliefs I have, but also like my desire is never as strong as when I like can't stand properly. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I know. I mean, I hear that from people, too. And I, I certainly want to acknowledge and honor that that is a feeling that a lot of larger bodied people might have is there might be things that are more difficult to do and like physical aches and pains that weren't there before. But I think, you know, something that I've learned from other you know fat activists in larger bodies that I've talked to about this because I, you know, had this question come up a number of times on the podcast and it's kind of like I don't feel personally equipped to answer this let me put this to some of my guests who are in larger bodies to see what they say like about this and they've had some really interesting perspectives so one person is Reagan Chastain who's a friend and colleague and wonderful fat activist and health coach and you know she often says like people thinking that they they can't move in a certain way or have less stamina or something like that um, you know oftentimes that gets blamed on the weight when actually there might be other factors at play such as you know she says there's like I forget exactly how many pillars of athletics I think four four pillars of athletics it's like um, and a sports specific technique and one other thing maybe I'm forgetting, but you know, that, that building, oh, flexibility. All right. So strength, flexibility, sport specific technique and stamina and building all of those things doesn't require you to, you to lose any weight. It just requires you to sort of 
build your strength, your stamina, your technique for a particular activity and, you know, flexibility if needed, right? And so I don't know for you with the walking stuff or standing, but like, you know, are there better shoes that you could get? Are, are there stretches that might need to be done on your feet, you know, or stretching stretching your legs or stretching in a way that, you know, maybe you didn't have to do before, right, when you were smaller bodied, but that could actually take care of the problem without necessitating weight loss. Um, you know, same thing with like knee pain, for example, right? Higher weight people are often told to lose weight for knee pain because it takes the pressure off their knees to have less weight on their knees. But actually, oftentimes, you know, Reagan has pointed this out too, that like the higher weight people who have knee problems, actually one of the reasons that they might have the knee problem in the first place is because they were told to exercise to lose weight and were doing it in a way that was really putting a lot of impact on their knees, right? Or, um, you know, not not doing it in a way that was sort of safe for their knees or have, you know, maybe sports injuries from years ago that got exacerbated by um, exercise to lose weight. And then they're told, you know, lose weight, do this, do exercise in order to lose weight. Yeah, go on, go on the bike. That's fine. That's low impact, right? And they're actually still, you know, exacerbating and aggravating the knee so that by the time they actually go to have surgery or have some kind of treatment with a physical therapist, their knee is in much worse shape than it would have been if they were a smaller bodied person and had gotten, you know, in the first place recommendations for stretching, strengthening, icing, resting, heat, you know, all of the things, massage, right? All the things that smaller bodied people get recommended when they go to a physical therapist for a particular type of pain. Like I have plantar fasciitis myself and knee pain and other joint pain, actually, you know, a bunch of bunch of old sports injuries and things that, you know, some of which was created or exacerbated when I was in my own overexercising days. And, you know, I'm a smaller bodied person. No one would blame that stuff on my weight. Right. And I've always gotten because of the privilege of that. I've always gotten good um, care from physical therapists and, and, you know, have had a lot of success in that and treating these issues with, you know, like a foot roller or getting orthotics, right? Or, you know, doing yoga or doing particular stretches for other forms of pain. And so, you know, that's not to say that every single thing that might be associated with being in a larger body, um, is exactly the same as living in a smaller body, right? There's some things that maybe higher weight people might need, you know, uh, accommodations for, and that's okay too. Another person I talked to on the podcast was Jay Aprileo, who has a blog called Comfy Fat. And that's a great resource, I think, for anyone in, you know, larger body or self-identifies as fat who um, – wants resources for feeling more comfortable in their skin. And Jay has a list there of, you know, things for fat hygiene that like thin people don't usually have to think about, right? Like, um, you know, an extent like a sponge extender to like reach hard to reach places or, um, you know, a curved shower curtain that helps accommodate a larger body, things like that, that actually exist, you know, products that are on the market, right? Chub rub, like chafing, um, anti-chafing stuff, which actually I get too because my thighs rub together also. <laughs> um, it doesn't just happen in, you know, higher weight people. That can that can affect people all across the spectrum. But, you know, things that when you think about it, there are, there are solutions. And um, in some cases, maybe the solutions need to be created in a technological way, like, you know, surgical devices that can help higher weight people so that they're not turned away from surgeries because of their weight and told to lose weight before they can get surgery. Um, but, you know, there really are solutions for all these different things. And I think 
Unfortunately, the the weight stigma that diet culture creates makes people feel bad for needing to seek out those solutions and those accommodations. But actually, there's nothing wrong with them. You know, like every everybody has needs. Everybody has maybe things that we need to accommodate. And why should higher weight people's bodies be stigmatized for having those needs and those you know, accommodations. It's just, it's just ridiculous. You know, I think everyone deserves accommodations and having their physical needs met, whether that's getting physical therapy that's going to support them in, you know, walking and moving um, more, less painfully, right? Or um, athletic uh, advice that's not going to you know, tell them to lose weight and stigmatize them for the size and shape of their body or, you know, devices and tools to make their life easier, to make everyday things, everyday tasks um, more manageable. I just want to go back to the, the, that question, though. Is there a room, though, then to to do intuitive eating and want to lose weight? I meant to, yeah. Say all of, all of those things that you said, you know, are valid 100%, but like, say you... It's true. It is more uncomfortable to have more weight on you, right? Like you said, you said that being in a bigger body, it is a little bit more uncomfortable to run, to walk faster, to exercise, like to get in that shape, to go to physical therapy. There's, it is tougher. Um, So say that you don't want to have to feel that. But I'm just saying it from my own, my own, I'm going to just say it as my own experience because I think it's it's even just okay. easier to, to use that mm-hmm. is that I'm saying I have done this. I am very pro-intuitive eating. I don't plan to stop attempting that like as how I approach my, my eating, but I'm really physically uncomfortable and I don't feel healthy. So like, is there a possibility that like maybe I personally sh- am – I'm not supposed to be this weight for my own body frame, for my own set of circumstances that like maybe a little bit less weight would be better for me or help me feel my optimal, my optimum. Yeah. Here's some other. Okay. So um, to go back to Aline's question of just like, is there room for people to want to lose weight in intuitive eating? Of course, there's room in the sense that like most people do. Right. Most people in our culture do want to lose weight. And so, of course, people are going to go into intuitive eating or be months or years into intuitive eating and still want to lose weight. Right. That desire might still be there. And the thing is, we just don't have a known way that is at once safe, sustainable and effective for people to lose weight. You know, that includes all types of diets or lifestyle changes or programs, protocols, whatever they want to call themselves. That includes diet pills, right, because they're not safe long term and oftentimes not sustainable or effective either, right, depending on the person. And that also includes weight loss surgery, right, because there are lots and lots of complications that come up with weight loss surgery that unfortunately don't get discussed at those consultation appointments. And the majority of people actually end up regaining most or all of the weight that they lost. So it's not even necessarily sustainable, right? Like even if it's the the sort of uh, timeline is longer, right? The timeline for weight regain tends to be longer with weight loss surgery, but it still happens. And so I think with that, you know, and I go into so much of the science in my book about why diets don't work, how diets actually drive weight up over time, or really any efforts to lose weight tend to drive weight up over time. 
all these complications that they cause, like disordered eating and, you know, issues with food, relationships with food and, um, you know, health concerns that are sort of a, a result of that, right, of disordered eating and the actual health effects of weight cycling itself, because weight cycling, the yo-yo of weight loss and regain that almost inevitably happens with diets, again, up to 98% of diets and weight loss efforts result in weight regain. Up to two-thirds of people actually regain more weight than they lost through intentional weight loss efforts, right? So it's it's not only ineffective, but it's actually taking people in the exact opposite direction that they want to go most of the time. And that process, whether it's just weight cycling ending up where you started out or weight cycling ending up heavier, regardless of where you end up, you're actually less well off after weight cycling because weight cycling increases people's risks of uh, heart disease, mortality, potentially diabetes and um, blood sugar abnormalities. You know, all these different things that tend to get blamed on weight itself can actually be explained largely by weight cycling as well as by weight stigma because weight stigma also carries many of the, you know, most of those risks and more. So, you know, I really tell people like, yes, it's it's totally understandable that you would want to lose weight in this culture. It's totally understandable that you would want to lose weight like in your situation, Sammy, where you're feeling less comfortable in your skin, right? And, you know, we really don't have a known way for you to lose weight, to to like prescribed to you, right? And so whether or not your body maybe ultimately loses weight through intuitive eating, who knows? But we have these other tools and these other ways for you to support your health, you know, such as going to a physical therapist and, you know, learning stretching and strengthening, stuff like that, or having other accommodations that your body might need um, so that you can feel better in your body without having to go through the risky proposition, right? Because again, dieting puts you at greater risk of all kinds of health concerns. And, you know, as a health professional, I just, I don't want that for anyone that I'm working with or talking, you know, even just in a sort of educational format. I don't want, I don't want anyone to have to go down that road um, who's listening to me. You know, I think it's, it's nuanced, right? It's like, yes, of course, people are going to want to lose weight with intuitive eating and, you know, that's just really gotten us so far from the health that we seek, right? Efforts to lose weight really haven't been sustainable. And I think, you you know, if you just, anyone listening to this, like think about that for yourself, right? Think about all your efforts to lose weight over the years and what has happened as a result and not blaming yourself, right? I think a lot of people think like, oh yeah, I did that one diet and it was really great, but then I just couldn't stick to it because X, Y, Z happened in my life. Actually, no, you couldn't stick to it because diets are designed so that you can't stick to them. Like we are not meant to suppress our weight long-term. The human body has all these biological mechanisms that push us back to our set point weight and oftentimes increase our set weight range. Really, it's a set range, not a set point, but you know, a range of number of pounds or sizes that you can be. Um, and our bodies oftentimes will push us higher on that you know, sort of set range when we've been weight suppressed, right? So your body's going to fight you probably on efforts to lose weight, and that's not your fault. There's nothing wrong with you if that happens. That's actually by design. That's actually what diets and weight loss efforts do, and it's their fault. It's the diet's fault. It's not your fault. Yeah, no, I think that is definitely very helpful because I think that that is sort of like a catch-22 middle ground that, I mean, I know I'm finding myself in, and I know that I'm asking because a lot of our audience you know, has expressed that they're finding themselves in 
in such a place as well. So um, that is that is very helpful. Um, yeah, I totally agree. I'm currently uh, I'm pregnant, and you know I'm slowly gaining weight, and I'm just always thinking about that. Like when I'm not pregnant anymore, like what am I going to do? And I, that reminder that you just shared about like how diets don't work. Like that's, that's definitely a good little bell in my head. Um, mm. but thank you so much, Christy, for joining us and sharing everything. That was awesome. Um, where can people listen to your podcast, um, share your book, what you're up to all of the above? Yeah, thank you so much for having me. It's great talking with you both. And um, people can find my podcast wherever you're listening to this podcast. Actually, you can just search for Food Psych, which is two words, and Psych is P-S-Y-C-H. And then you can find out more about me, my work, my book, and also the podcast as well as my newsletter at christyharrison.com. There um, I've got all the information. I've got some fun like free guides and stuff that people can check out. And if you subscribe to my newsletter, that's where I'm kind of most active right now. I'm actually working on my second book and so kind of took a little hiatus from the podcast, but we're still doing reruns. So if you're new to the show, you can subscribe and check out the you know best of episodes from previous seasons and stuff. But um, my newsletter is where I'm creating new content every week now, and that's at christyharrison.com slash newsletter. Well, everybody go check it out. Thank you so much again, everyone. Please go rate, review, subscribe, and email us, dst at betches.com. Follow us at Diet Stars Tomorrow, at Sammy, at Aileen. And we're always with you through thick and thin. Diet Starts Tomorrow is produced by Sean Kilby and Jorge Morales Pico. Editing by Stacey Wong and Sean Kilby. Social media by Sydney Rafe. Guest booking by Nicole Pellegrino. Be sure to follow at Diet Starts Tomorrow on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. And send us your emails to dst at betches.com. Betches.